You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The year 2000 was important for many reasons. You had the new millennium. I graduated from high school, which was a very important thing. But more important than any of those, on February 24th, at a theater off-Broadway, a musical that was based on a 1928 poem written by Joseph Moncure March called The Wild Party opened. And then two months later, on Broadway, another musical based on a poem by Joseph Moncure March called The Wild Party, also opened. You guys, it's unlike anything else that's really happened in musical theater history. We're talking about it today, and I have Queenie herself to talk to me about it. Hi, Julia. Well, one of them. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Like I said, we're covering the wild parties today. And my guest is Drama Desk Award nominee for the wild party. Do you like that? (laughs) I laugh because no one cares. I cared. Don't let me be clear. I totally care. <laughs> it's not no, like d- a thing. Dreams are coming true, people. Dreams are dreams come true. Yeah. Dreams come true. It's Julia Murney, everyone. It's me. It's me. I've been nominated twice for a drama desk. Ooh. What was the other one for? The other one was for a play many, uh-huh. many years later. Uh, for best actress in a play, or lead actress in a play, whatever it was called. Because you're uh, what? Versatile. That's it. Um for a play I did called Falling Off-Broadway. Oh, awesome. And both times I knew with 100% confidence that I would not win. That's actually really nice. There was no pressure. Yeah. There was no, because the for the Wild Party year, the nominees were, because the Drama Desks, for those of you who don't know about the Drama Desk, which would be all of you, um, <laughs> the, the Drama Desks combine Off-Broadway and Broadway. Right. There's no delineation. So the nominees for lead actress in a musical were all of the women who were nominated for a Tony and me. <laughs> and it was the year of Aida. And you got freaking Heather Headley. And you knew it was Heather Headley down and around. And the year that I was nominated for Falling for Best Actress in a Play, 
I was up against, among others, Cicely Tyson in The Road to Bountiful. You're like, give it to Cicely Tyson. We all yeah. want to hear her talk. 100%. So it, I very much felt like if, if I could actually go through life like this, like I feel really good and really proud and flattered, but no one's going to really put me on the spot and I'm not going to be disappointed. If all of those things could just be life, I would be totally down with that. I love that. We need to look at life like we do the 2000 Drama Desk Awards. <laughs> Which also, as a sidebar, the Drama Desks are sort of the, I guess you could call them like the Golden Globes, the way Ooh, those are to the yes, Oscars. absolutely. But for many years, including the year 2000, the ceremony was held in my high school. In my literal, not the way the kids misuse that word, but literal and actual high school are you kidding me it's not like the beverly hills ballroom no well now they do it at uh town hall is the latest place that they that's where the later nomination occurred but for for wow party i remember so clearly i went with tay and adina uh we took a car there together and stepping out of the car in my dress that i had bought and i was feeling saucy and of course to step onto what I like to call the red bath mat as opposed to the red carpet. Uh, <laughs> and I'm sitting there and I'm like, should I go to my locker and see if my sandwich is still there? This is this is not the way you make this this award show seem like the Golden Globes next to the Oscars. Sure. You can't have it in a high school. Was there ever a better metaphor for being a theater actor versus <laughs> a TV film actor? Going yeah, to your high school. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. <laughs> Oh, a quick warning to everybody. The Wild Party is very sexual and uh, very adult, I should just say. So if you are, you know, driving your kids around, maybe listen to our episode about Frozen. The Wild Party would definitely be R-rated if there were ratings on such things. Which, can I tell you my Wild Party story? Yeah, please do. Like I said, year 2000, I graduated high school. So I go with my mom and my grandma to New York. Like the best present ever to take little Jeffrey to go see as many Broadway shows as he wanted. Sweet. I got tickets to go see the Lacusa Wild Party on Broadway, but uh-huh. I knew that my beautiful sweet mother from Willard, Utah, was not going to like the Wild Party, even though I did. I, I hadn't seen it. I just. Knew. What's your mom's name? Carla. Carla. It's not for Carla. It's not for Carla. And that's okay. Not that's, every show is for everybody. Absolutely. And I don't think that she would like be offended and walk out, but she just wouldn't enjoy it. And I wanted her to enjoy something. So I sent her to Miss Saigon around the corner. Sure. Because she had, she had never seen that and she loved it. And I saw the wild party all by myself. So I go in. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like. That's an experience. Right. So I'm 18. Never seen a rated R movie in my life. I walk into the wild party. I'm excited. I sit down. I knew of Michael John Lacusa because I had always seen the CD cover of Hello Again, which is also very scandalous. And so I was like, ooh, this guy, you know. So I sit down. A guy who I now recognize as a middle-aged gay man sits next to me. And he kind of looks at me like, are you, are you supposed to be here? And he, Do and you have he, ID? Right, exactly. <laughs> And he's like, where are you from? And I said, Willard, Utah. And he's like, oh, wow. Well, this will be fun. This is the third time I've seen this show. 
I was like, oh, that's very cool. And he said, FYI, this show doesn't make any sense, but I love it. I was like, oh, interesting. Okay. So we get like halfway through the show and it's a 90 no, no intermission. So we get halfway through and he leans- A 90 no. I have never heard this phrase before, Jeff. Did you make that up? No, this is a Sarah Kapner term used on the podcast, and we have since embraced it and spread it freely. A 90 no. I like it. Okay, continue. Sorry. Halfway through. Halfway through the 90 no, he leans over and he's like, this is actually making perfect sense. I was drunk the other two times. And I was like, (laughs) welcome to adulthood, seeing the wild party and experiencing a wild party right next to me all at the same time. At that point, like what was one of your favorite musicals? Like what was your go-to? Ooh, I was a... Big, big Candor Neb fan. Those are my boys. Yeah. yeah. Those are my boys. I think because there was something about, well, there is something about Candor Neb that always sounds super traditional. And then you go like a little bit further. Don't sleep on Candor Neb. That's exactly. right. That's right. And I think that that's actually how I feel a little bit in my life, too, where I'm religious. I try to be a good person. You know, I'm traditional. But also... How cool. Let's talk about this. So as little 18-year-old Jeff, did anyone ever call you Jeffy? No, probably. Oh, yeah. No, my mom calls me Joffy. Like, that's the big... Oh, adorable. Yeah. So what was your reaction to the 90 minutes of that show that you saw? It was the first time I was a little scared watching a musical, which I loved. Was the first time you saw any kind of nudity in a musical? Mmm. Yes. Yes. Okay. It was. I saw Tony Collette's boobs. There they were. And they were beautiful. They tried to get me to show mine. I said no. And then when I went to see that one, within two minutes, she dropped her top. And I was like, oh, my God, would we have moved to Broadway? Was I supposed to show my boobs? The answer is no. That's not why we didn't go to Broadway. <laughs> Still. Yeah. So it was the first time I had seen boobs. But it was scary. It felt very menacing to me. Also, it had this like cathartic moment at the end that also made all of that okay. So I had a great time and was thrilled that I saw it. It's one of, I still have the poster. It's one (laughs) of the things I'm most proud about seeing. So that was the Lacusa Wild Party on Broadway. You were the star of the Wild Party off Broadway. This was like a huge break for you, right? Oh, yes. Way huge. And the only thing that was as big a story as the fact that there were two wild parties happening at the same time was that there was this like breakthrough new performance by Julia Murney. And I'm not saying that to like blow smoke up your butt, but like everyone, (laughs) everyone walked away from that show and being like, who is this amazing vocal creature who has appeared in musical theater? You sounded like nobody else. And that score demanded so much of you. So how was it? balancing those two things the fact that there was all of this hoopla about you and all of this hoopla about your quote-unquote competition well I'll say this to start doing that show was to this day the highlight of my professional career in terms of the timing of it and the way it happened and all this sort of stuff And part of the reason it's such a highlight is that I learned so many things all on one show because it was my first big thing in New York. It was me originating a role as opposed to replacing. Um, I was the lead of the show. 
I mean, there were other leads, but I was the sort of focal point of the storytelling. For sure. Um, I learned what it was like to be in something that was simultaneously the audience. It was like a rock concert. I remember one night at intermission, the rumors started going around backstage that Jennifer Holiday was there. One night, Bette Midler was there. Like Jennifer wow. Holiday had walked up to the box office and bought a single ticket. And wow. I'm like, no one can tell me this information anymore. I right. can't know <laughs> that the goddesses are watching. Exactly. Um, so we had those audiences. And then we had people walking out. Really? All the time. But Manhattan Theater Club's uh, subscription base is older. Okay. And while probably liberal, if you interviewed them, you would probably find they're a love of the liberal bent. This show, this source material is raunchy. And some people dug it and some people did not. I think also with a subscriber base, you're also dealing with people who have a pair of tickets to every show of that theater season, which also kind of invites a strange mentality of, we're not liking this one, are we? Let's go. We have four more coming up later. Yeah, I think people walk out easier somehow. Interesting. In that I, kind I buy of a that. situation. Totally buy that. But the thing about Manhattan Theater Club is it's very small. To get out, you have to come down to in front of the stage, basically, to exit, even if you're sneaking. So if you're on stage, you are... <laughs> A hundred percent aware that these people are walking out. Now, you can assume sometimes if one person's walking, oh, they're running to the bathroom. If two people are walking in and they have their coats on and their bags, they're leaving your play. <laughs> they're not interested in what you are serving on the plate. Uh, wow. Which is kind of devastating, but kind of funny <laughs> if you can twist it the right way. So there it is. Wow. Um, but I personally, I never thought of Wild Party, of our Wild Party, of the Lipa Wild Party as a failure in any way. The one step in the whole process that it didn't make that was the plan from the beginning was it did not move to Broadway. Mm, right. And so to me, I got to do it. I got to help create it with the creators around me. With, I had lunch this very day with two women from that show. Jen Cody That's and so Megan Sakura. Oh my gosh, how fun. Yep, I, I just put that together. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, these are, and yesterday I had a lovely walk with Brian Darcy James' wife. So these are people that are, that became part of my life and I got to do the show. Wow. So I don't see where the lose is. I also, I was practical enough in my Capricorn way <laughs> that I, I understood why we did not move to Broadway. It's not as simple as, we just love this show. We're going to Broadway. Right. It's millions of dollars. Exactly. It's a business. And it was a decision that had to be made immediately upon our opening, like within four days. Wow. In order to get built and into a theater by Tony time cutoff mm -hmm. for nominations. So the decision got made very, very quickly. And- the two big um, elements that really knocked it out were the New York Times hated us. Now, the New York Times also hated the other one. Exactly. But no one knew what the New York Times was going to say about the other one because I don't even think they had begun previews yet. I'm almost positive about that because there was no 
you know, super spy report or right. anything about what the other one was like. So the two elements really were, we didn't have the times and there was another one and it was confusing. It was simply confusing. Right. There were flowers delivered to the other theater that were meant for someone in our show. Are you kidding there was, me? No, there was a, a one night, um, our spot operator came down from his perch at intermission and a woman walked up to him and, and, this, and went, excuse me, when does Eartha Kitt come to the party? <laughs> and he was like, hmm, you're going to be waiting quite a while, ma'am, because she's not in this one. Wow. That's confusing. You know, it's confusing. And the... The party line was just sort of, there's room for everyone. Mm-hmm. And as you know, or anyone who happens to be listening, who is familiar even just with the recordings, of the, they are wildly different shows. Incredibly different. That happen to have the same characters in them and the same opening lines because they come from the poem. And Andrew and Michael John are both supremely different writers they have different styles. They have different tastes. So we're talking about Andrew Lippa, who wrote the new songs for your good man, Charlie Brown. If you listen to our Charlie Brown episode a few weeks ago, he started as a middle school teacher, which I didn't know, and then became a musical director, a pianist in New York, collaborated with other people on writing songs. He would write the music. They would write the lyrics. And then he finds the poem, the Wild Party poem. It immediately speaks to him. And in this interview I read of his, he said that he was almost considering it to be like his cats. You know, like Andrew Lloyd Webber just wrote music to the T.S. Eliot poem of of cats. And so Mm -hmm. he wasn't going to look for a lyricist because he's like, I'm just going to use the poem as is. Then you realize that no one's speaking from first person in the poem. And he realized that we needed to hear what these people were thinking and feeling. So he started writing lyrics. Long story short, too late, Andrew Lippa writes <laughs> Thank music. Thank you for saying that. I always say that. <laughs> but I wouldn't say to you because I just met you and it's rude. <laughs> Andrew Lippa writes music and lyrics for The Wild Party. It's the first time he does it and has done it ever since. The irony of the Drama Desk that year was that our show was the most nominated show at the Drama Desks. We were already closed. Wow. But of any Broadway show, of any off-Broadway show, we were the most nominated. I don't know how many we had, like 10 or 11 or something. And the only one of all of those nominations, he won (gasps) for music. And honestly, sitting there, that was the only one I cared about. I just wanted Andrew to win something. It's a really interesting time in this period of musical theater, especially New York musical theater. You know, you, you talked about how the Times hated both versions. And I think that one of the things that both of these musicals have in common is the fact that they were doing something that was a little different, that was pushing the art form somewhere it hadn't necessarily been. In the Lippa Wild Party, you guys had very much like a pop rock score that was pushing Mm -hmm. the limits in terms of what a musical theater score sounded like. And in the Lacusa Wild Party, you had a very bizarre structure, a very short show that was unusual for the Broadway scene. Uh, One thing I remember Michael John Lacusa saying is that if you are trying to do something different, you have to have the critics on your side (laughs) because you're not going to get mass appeal simply because it's different. 
You know, you need well, you need because a it doesn't go down smooth. It's exactly, not exactly. It's not vanilla ice cream. It's like ice me. cream that has like marshmallows and maybe some caramel in it. And some people are like, I don't want that in my ice cream. And some and I'm people like, go, Give me the marshmallows. Ooh, that sounds tasty. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and nobody tries more different than Michael John. For sure. You know, he he always shoots for his own moon. He doesn't shoot for the moon that everybody else is shooting for. That's beautifully said. His own moon um, that has its own sense of gravity. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people like to say that his music particularly is sort of not super accessible. I think his lyrics are astounding. Uh, Longtime listeners of the podcast, if you listen to our episode about See What I Want to See, you have already met Michael John Lacusa, who is an incredibly talented writer. Now, I've spent the last week or so reading both scripts. Oh. And listening to the scores, which I didn't have to listen to too hard because they're in my brain. But I wanted to think of like a concise statement as to the dramaturgical differences of these two musicals. And this is what I came up with. The Lippa Wild Party seems like the Olympics of musical theater. It's pushing you to the limits in terms of vocal ability, emotion, even athleticism. There's so much choreography and dancing in the show. Mm-hmm. And then you've got the Lacusio Wild Party which feels to me like a, an amazing New Yorker article. And both of Nicely which... Nicely done. <laughs> Nicely done. Both are amazing to watch. And both are very different and serve almost different purposes at times. Mm-hmm. To have two musicals come from the same source material and go to those two different places, I think says a lot about the power of being an artist, about intention, And I love looking at it for that very reason. The subjectiveness of art. Yeah. The whole reason they found the poem to begin with, that Andrew and Michael John found the poem, is because it had had a re-release with these illustrations by a man called Art Spiegelman and these gorgeous illustrations. And it was on like the new and noteworthy shelf at the Barnes & Noble. This poem from 1928, right? Like, nobody knew that poem. No. It wasn't, it wasn't a, oh my God, we studied that poem in high school. No. No, there's no, 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 no. way. In fact, looking back at it now, because I had never read it, I sat down, I completely understand what both of them saw in it. I think those illustrations help as well. That is the truth, too. They're stunning, and they're very evocative, and they're sexy, mm-hmm. and that's definitely something both of the productions ended up with. Yeah. Like a sexy sharpness. For sure. Um, Go Art Spiegelman. And if you see the illustrations as well, you can't unsee them. You're absolutely right. Because it is one of those pieces of literature where you kind of get the feeling that you're reading porn. (laughs) And yet you're not, right? And it's like literature. I I gotta read that poem again. I don't know. (laughs) Number one, that's 100% the reason you don't study in school. In fact, when it came out in 1928, it was immediately banned. It wasn't until 1931, I believe, when it finally started being read. And then, Mm. like you said, it gets re-released in the 90s, like 95. At that point, it's turned into public domain. And I think that that is the other ding, ding, ding (laughs) that we haven't talked about yet. 
because most oh, music it is it is the ding 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 yeah <laughs> the the situation would not have existed without right, exactly that ding, ding, ding. so many of the musicals nowadays are based on a film that producing entity had to secure the rights to that film in order to make a musical of it However, with The Wild Party, when a poem like that is public domain, anybody can do anything with it, and it doesn't matter if someone else is looking into it either. It also means that you don't have to pay anything for the rights, and so it's not as expensive. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of like all of these weird elements just lined up Mm -hmm. and made it be what it was, which was a strange, strange journey in terms of having two of them. Now... um, A hallmark of this show is that we go through the actual story. We go through the storytelling from a cultural and emotional standpoint. And since we're talking about two musicals, I would love if we could real quick go through the story of the Lippa and then briefly talk about how the Lacusa differs. Is that okay with you? Sure. Okay. As you alluded to at the beginning... Both wild parties begin with a song called Queenie Was a Blonde, which is the opening line of the poem. You don't realize until you go to the poem how much is actually just word for word taken from the poetry. It's incredible. They, they, it really was kind of calling out to be musicalized. But in this opening part, we meet Queenie. Talk to me about her, because I think she's one of the most fascinating characters we have in musical theater. So in the show, she's basically a, she's a vaudeville dancer. Of indeterminate age. She's not a child by a stretch. I mean, the opening line is Queenie was a blonde and her age stood still. And she danced twice a day in vaudeville. Her boyfriend is Burr's the clown. He's the big, like vaudevillian, famous vaudeville clown that everybody loves. Now, there was a time in one of the readings as the show was being created where you saw them meet. You saw Queenie as a younger girl with her parents who treated her horribly, which is not that surprising. Wow. Um, And having the opportunity for me to get to do that, even though that got cut, in my brain, I was like, well, that's the story, though. It's still there. That's her history. Nobody else knew what that history was because nobody else who was in that reading was in the show, but I was. Wow, that's cool. um, so Queenie and Burrs live together in this apartment and in a city that is not ever quite – it's definitely a city. Right. It could be New York, but it could be Chicago. It could be wherever. Detroit. And they have a very um, dysfunctional relationship, I think you could say at best. Yeah. That is definitely physical. That is definitely drug and drink addled. But when we meet them in the lip production they're sort of at a bit of a breaking point and because they're both performers perhaps like they have like these highs and then you come off stage and you don't know how to replicate the high and that's why a lot of people get into drink and drugs and and add in that we're talking about the end of the 1920s right before the stock market crash so obviously no one knew the stock market crash was coming, but there is this undercurrent, this underbelly, this rumbling of the subway as it's going up and everything's about to absolutely go off the rails. And that's what happens. And they decide to throw a party and invite all their friends and all their friends come to their apartment. 
And you meet all of these different people. Like there's a, a, a pair of producers mm-hmm. and a boxer, a pugilist and his girlfriend. And, his gal. and so all their friends come to the party and they wait for Queenie's sort of best girl, if you will, who is this woman, Kate, who arrives with her new boyfriend that she's just picked up. And he's this mysterious man called Mr. Black. Kate played by the famous Adina Menzel. Indeed. And nowadays we think of her as this belting introvert because of of Wicked and Frozen. But there was a time when Adina Menzel was the party girl. Nobody played party girl like Adina Menzel. And I love that part of her career. It's just so interesting that there are these different chapters of her career. And this is squarely in that party girl phase. Right. She was definitely in that Maureen, the Maureen Kate phase. Exactly. And by the way, Burrs is played by Brian Darcy James. And oh, Queenie, yes, I play Queenie. And What a um, cast. My Ad- gosh. Adina played Kate. And she brings to the party her new boyfriend, who was actually her boyfriend at the time, <laughs> Tay Diggs. Um, Not a bad looking guy. Nope, nope. And he smells real nice, too, I'm going to tell you. Uh, And um, as these things happen in musicals, Black sees Queenie and he sees her Hmm. in a way that Burrs doesn't, Kate doesn't. I remind you, everyone in this show is horrible. (laughs) They're horrible (laughs) people. Everybody is screwed up in one degree or another. But Queenie also sees Black as a way to really tick Burrs off. And so she spends the evening flirting with Mr. Black. Kate just basically wants to score some drugs off of whoever's going to give it to her. She doesn't really <laughs> seem to care. While Burrs is getting drunker and more high, like it, it, everyone at the party, it just devolves and devolves. And there's dancing. It all takes place in one apartment in this one night, there are some moments of quiet where there's just Queenie and Black having a conversation. Connecting. But the entire cast was behind us in a, on, a, on a section of the stage doing what we called the silent movie, where basically they could do anything they wanted. It had to be completely silent. Physically, they could do anything they want. It had to be completely silent and it had to be in complete slow motion. Really? The entire time? No, ju- just the, uh, this was during... Um, oh, during those quiet moments. My bad. Yeah, during the end of Act One, what are those songs? Shoot, Queenie sings... What do I uh, sing? Maybe it's mm-hmm. better this way. Maybe maybe, maybe I like it this way. Right. So Queenie sings that, and then Burrs sings... What, uh, is it about what is it about her? And during that whole sequence, the whole rest of the cast, nobody leaves the stage the whole show. We're, we're not on... What is it called? Not 90 and done. What's it called? Yeah, 90, 90 no. no. Yeah, we are a traditional two-act situation. Um, <laughs> but with the exception of intermission, nobody leaves stage. Everyone essentially passes out, including Burrs, including Kate. Meanwhile, this is not a large apartment, but of course, it's musical, so whatever. Um, in the other room, Queenie and Black have consummated this relationship it's not a relationship but this moment yeah and burrs wakes up from his reverie in a completely silent moment and suddenly doesn't know where queenie is and wants to know where she is he threads through the apartment of all of these bodies lying everywhere because everyone's passed out and goes into the bedroom finds them together pulls a gun on them there is a very exciting trio (laughs) that is sung where he's just 
It's sort of like Burroughs doesn't care who he kills. He just wants to sh- shoot somebody. It could be himself. He, at, some, at one point, puts the gun to his own head. Mm-hmm. It could be him. It could be Queenie. It could be Burroughs. He, so, he just wants to hurt somebody. There's a big fight that ensues. All three of us are in on it, and the gun goes off. And in the staging, in ours, you actually, for a second, don't know who got shot. And then you realize that it's Burrs. And he falls over dead. Queenie makes, for the first time perhaps in her life, a selfless decision and makes Black leave. Because she's like, if they catch you... The Black man just murdered a man in his own home. And she makes Mm -hmm. him leave. And then she has an epiphany, even with this man that she did love, dead at her feet. She's got to get out of the whole scene. And she picks up her shoes and her coat and she walks out the door and that's the end of the play. Wow. Just so you know, (laughs) I usually have to do that on this show and I know that it is not easy. And you did that beautifully. Uh, Especially for something I haven't. I mean, I've left stuff out, but I guess it's supposed to be concise, right? Yeah. No, I was completely engrossed. (laughs) (laughs) I laughed. I cried. Better than cats. Now, a couple things that I want to talk about. Mm. In the Lippa version, one of the main themes that pops out to me is relationships. And in particular, Mm -hmm. this this relationship between Burrs and Queenie is highly volatile, downright abusive, right? Let's let's Mm -hmm. call a thing a Mm -hmm. thing. And there are so few musicals that really explore spousal abuse in this way that's not in like a carousel type way. And the hard thing about being in an abusive relationship is that you don't always feel like a victim in the abusive relationship. So then how would you recognize it as one? Absolutely. I think with Queenie and Burrs, there is something that they're each getting out of the relationship. And from the get-go, we know that it's sex. They're both incredibly adventurous when it comes to that part of their lives. And the sex has always been really great to keep her from thinking of herself as being in a dangerous situation. And like I said, no one would know this, but in that one pass-through that we did where you met her with her family, Mm -hmm. her father abused her. I'm sure. I'm sure. Once you know that as an actor, you're like, got it. Yeah. That's why The conditioning happened long ago. And when they met, Burrs was the star. Queenie was in the chorus. Mm. Burrs is the star. It's not like she's the hidden star that the impresario has to, like, she's okay. Right. She throws a great party and she's like all the stuff. So, you know, the two of them live in this world of like, like I said before, like just heightened, heightened, heightened. Uh, And a theater, everyone wants to be near them and wants to talk to them and wants to buy them drinks after the show and all that kind of stuff. Then in real life, what do you do when you go home? And we're talking about a time period where prohibition was the thing, which may even like push the addictions further. Oh, certainly. I watched this PBS documentary all about prohibition. It was like one of those really long six hour things. <laughs> I, oh, I love those. Right? I love them. Fantastic. What I didn't realize is that alcoholism in early America was a huge problem. Like there was a reason for prohibition going into effect. We had just gone through the Industrial Revolution. People were being treated like machines, not humans. And everybody turned to drink, which honestly was really bad for relationships. And a lot of women were abused because of it. So religious women were one of some of the people on the the front lines trying to make prohibition happen because they were tired of being beaten. P.S. I played one of them 
in a musical by Michael John LaCusa. I'd like to bring it all full circle for you right now. Full freaking circle. What was that? You're welcome. It's called Queen of the Mist. Oh, yes. And there is a woman, a real woman who lived called Carrie Nation. Her like signature was that she would walk into bars with an axe and start chopping up the physical bar. Not the people. Just the physical <laughs> bar. What a boss. Carrie Nation. And you played her? I did. Julia She's Murray. the musical Queen of the Mist by Michael John Lacuso, which frankly, if anyone is looking for like the gateway for Michael John in terms of accessibility, I think that is a great one. Really? It's a glorious cool. show about courage and life and regret. Wow. I love so that. That, that feels inspired and synchronistic. Um, because of all of that, this time period is actually very dark. It's very wild like the the poem and the musical itself. And yet, whenever we talk about the Roaring Twenties, it's always Thoroughly Modern Millie, it's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. We have so few representations of this kind of dark underbelly of the society and what was going on, except for mm. the wild parties, which I think is a is a great thing. That's interesting, yes. The other thing that I want to point out is that in both musicals, there is quite possibly no bigger showstopper than Lesbian Love Story, which is written for one of the guests of the party and performed by hilarious Alex Corey. And I will tell you a fun Please. fact about that song. When we did the very first reading, in which I did not even play Queenie, but Alex and I were the only two people who were in the show from that reading to the actual wow. uh, production. And oh, cool. the three things that remained all the way through were... Queenie was a blonde. A different character sang it, but the, oh. that melody and that lyric from the poem was there. Poor Child, the quartet, and Lesbian Love Story. Oh, my god! Those were the three that were there from the drop. And you were like, well, you can't touch those. Right. <laughs> those are real good. Yeah. Gems. Gold, for yeah. sure. That being yeah. said, I feel like every song is kind of a showstopper in this. And... How did you do it? How did like I like how do you sing all of those songs back to back? You've also done Alphaba, which you know you have like a gajillion songs to sing at the top of your range. But was it exhausting um, or not? Sure. Yes, I think I had the advantage of of age because I was younger. I had nothing to prove because <laughs> I had no track record, so I also had nothing to lose. Fair enough. And the biggest advantage was that it was written on me over oh, well, like a four-year period. And so there was nothing in there that I hadn't either explicitly or implicitly agreed upon that felt right in my mm. body, and my throat. Um, it didn't mean I wasn't tired. It didn't mean – but it just felt so mm. natural in my mouth. <laughs> you know, so much of what we do in theater is – recreate roles that have been done on the other people's throats. The majority of what people do in theater, yeah. Yeah, and when I when I replaced in Wicked, that's what I had to do. Mm -hmm. And that was much harder, mm -hmm. much harder for me because it that's was written right in the, in the meat of where Dee sings and how Dee sings, and I don't sing like Dee. Adina, sorry. Because uh, um, you're friends. Well, I also didn't want you to get confused because there's another girl who played Alpha Book called D Rossioli. So, you know, <laughs> I just want to be clear. Um, who's amazing? Uh, there's also a difference between Queenie 
the character of Queenie, she sort of hums all the way through. And every once in a while, she has these spikes and these uh-huh. drops. And then she goes back to humming, like trying to be the hostess in a, in a weird way. Alphaba is like, oh, like she's like kind of <laughs> all over the place. She's just screaming at monkeys and screaming at Fiero and doesn't know. And, and it's so awkward in her own skin until she figures out how to how to hold herself down. Sometimes it's that energy that was actually more exhausting and the screaming. It was the screaming at the, at the monkeys and the Fieros and the et ceteras. I didn't have to scream like that in Wild Party. I sang much more in Wild Party and yeah. was much less tired to my recollection. That's really interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Okay. So now in terms of the La Cusia Wild Party, mm-hmm. basically the same story. We have some different guests coming out of the woodwork. Right. Um, all the same guests are at each party. I remember this part very clearly because of, of Eartha Kitt. In the Lippa, Dolores is sort of introduced and then is just kind of in the background. And mm-hmm. in the Lacusa, Dolores okay. is Eartha Kitt. So she's clearly not in the background. <laughs> yes, exactly. Now, but some the, of the... But the main, the main quartet in Lacusa is still Queenie Burr's Black and Kate, right? Yeah, I would say that Kate is is a smaller role. It's interesting because in both instances, in both scripts, Kate comes into the party kind of being like, Queenie, are you okay? I mean, I know this relationship isn't great. But then at the same time, they want to sleep with Burrs. Right. So it's this interesting... In which, in which production do you mean? Oh, in, in both. There's like hints okay. in both of the scripts that Kate wants to sleep with Burrs and yet is oh, yeah. also also recognizes how bad he is for Queenie. There it's a yes. it's a strange kind of frenemy thing that she has. Did going I on. did I mention that they're all horrible people? <laughs> I think I mentioned that they're all horrible people. Fair enough. Um but I would argue that the main quartet in the Lacusia is Queenie, Burrs, Black, Dolores. Oh, okay. Because Dolores who was played by Eartha Kitt and is this actress slash prostitute. Like, you're not really sure which is, should be labeled first because they're very intertwined. She almost becomes this guardian angel for Queenie because she's been everywhere. She's seen everything. She knows everything. She's like, look, if you want to end up dead, you stay in this relationship. Otherwise, get the hell out of this thing. Her wisdom is always what keeps on popping up. The way that Lacusia organized his show, it's less traditional in terms of it being a book musical. Number one, 90 No. Number two, it's crafted kind of like an old vaudeville show because Burrs and Queenie both came from vaudeville. They had these cards that would... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Would announce the different sections of the show. So it was a little Brechtian in terms of, hey, here's the introduction. And now the guests are arriving and and someone would come out and change the sign like they they would in vaudeville. But while Lippa's really looks at relationships, Lacusa's really looks at identity and what masks do we wear Mm. to keep us safe or keep us stuck or keep us somewhere? We're told, it, you know, in the beginning, Queenie was a blonde and her age stood still. She danced twice a day in vaudeville. She had gray eyes, lips like coals aglow, and her face was a tinted mask of snow. And I think that that is what really got Michael John into exploring that whole idea of masks. 
Queenie is hiding behind this perfect mask of snow. And Queenie, the character, was originally written for Vanessa Williams. That is so. So when you think of that, when you think of Vanessa Williams hiding underneath a layer of white, and then you pair that with Burrs, who was played by Mandy Patinkin, who was an Al Jolson-type clown in that version. So Mm -hmm. he is wearing blackface. You've got Queenie hiding behind white, Burrs hiding behind black. What are they hiding from? And when is it all going to come crashing down? And then both of these musicals coming out in the year 2000, what happens the year after? Mm, I never thought about that. 9-11. In many ways, the bubble bursts. All of a sudden, white, safe America is kind of thrown into this state of terror that a lot of minorities in, in this country have experienced on a daily basis. And then I think even now in this year, we've seen that bubble burst again in terms of social justice. What are these masks that we're hiding behind? When do you wake up? Hopefully you're not waiting for somebody to get shot. Because that was kind of the rock bottom in both of these situations that leads Queenie to either walk out of the apartment or take off her mask, which is what happens in the Cuser version. He That was Tony, my question. I don't remember what happens at the end Burrs is shot dead, right? Burrs is shot kind of similarly. There's a struggle. He dies. The party's still going. And all of a sudden, we see Queenie in a nondescript location. And she's repeating her phrase. Queenie was a blonde and her age stood still. But now she is wrecked. And she takes out a handkerchief and just wipes her face off for the first time. You know, nobody... (laughs) What I love about Tony is that she can do the most acting per second of any individual. (laughs) (laughs) Like, have you seen Hereditary, Julia? I cannot see Hereditary. Mama can't handle the the scaries. Please don't then. I can't. Because it destroyed me. Like, I I can neither recommend it nor not recommend (laughs) it. Because it's so... (laughs) It's so effective, and yet I'll never watch it again. I didn't even attempt to do it. So she is over the top this entire show. We've seen, you know, 90 minutes of Toni Collette quite masterfully doing all of this facade acting. And then at the very end, we see her finally take off that mask. And she says, this is what it is to live in light. And it's one of the first times that you hear this really beautiful major chord on light. And Mm. the whole stage lit up in in a different way than it had been in shadows. So in this story is this epiphany of this woman. And I think what we can walk away with is what's it going to take for us to wake up, either individually or as a society, you know? That's very interesting. But I really appreciate these pieces. They're both incredibly unusual, very individual, and I think would have a hard time getting produced now. And so I'm really grateful they were. And I think, I mean, I know I can I can only speak, and I can't speak for Andrew, but I can only speak for his side of things. He and I did Broadway Con together. Oh, no, it was still this calendar year. Oh, my God. This calendar year <laughs> is just a nightmare. Anyway, in January, wow. pre-pandy, when I caught, actually, <laughs> what I called the Broadway con flu, because I got really sick 
And I have been checked for antibodies because I wondered at one point. I was like, did I have some mild COVID, but I didn't have the antibodies, so I guess It not. was just the Broadway con flu. Just the Broadway con flu. Um, Go figure. But one of the things that I did at Broadway con this year was with Andrew, and it was him and myself, and I'm going to, God save me, I have to learn to pronounce her name properly because she's extraordinary and because she's a human being. Uh, uh, Jakina Kalakango. I'm saying her last name wrong. I know I am. She was in Slave Play, but she was, a few years ago, they did the wild party at Encores in the summertime at City Center. With Sutton Foster, right? Correct. And she played Kate. Joaquina played Kate. So it was Joaquina, myself, and Andrew. And um, he said at the symposium, he said, honestly, if there's anything I would do at this point, I would lean into how horrible they are. Wow. Because that's kind of part of what it is. It's like, it is. do you see what happens? Do you see how ugly it all makes you mm-hmm. when you just don't, you have no empathy for other people. You have no care for what someone else does or what your actions do to someone else. That's what happens in the wild party. Everyone's hedonistic mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with having a dang good time. There's nothing wrong with it, but it has to have degrees of humanity. Yeah. It makes me, as an artist and a patron of the arts or whatever, it makes me want to support those people who are willing to go there with it, you know, because there's always going to be audiences for the other stuff. Exactly. It, and it is tricky. It's not, unfortunately, the way, the direction that I think Broadway has become is that musicals have less and less of an opportunity to be something odd or different because everyone, even if they deny it till deep in their bones, they know everyone wants a wicked. Mm-hmm. By which I mean everyone wants a show that gets everybody country homes and stability financially and bleep bleep blop. Not everything belongs on Broadway. Not by a long shot does everything belong on Broadway. You're right. For all kinds of different reasons. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean it shouldn't be seen. Because again, like going back to what we were talking about way earlier about these two men, about Andrew and Michael John, both finding this poem and seeing a musical in it, even though they were two very different musicals, it's subjective taste. I cannot tell you the number of times that someone has said, wait, which one were you in? And I'll say, oh, the, the Lippa one. And they'll either say, oh, mm-hmm. Or they'll go, oh, you were in the good one. Wow. And either way, I'm like, it's fine. It doesn't matter. They're all right. Everyone is correct. Think of the practice that we get by being theater goers of developing subjective opinions based on the art that we consume and being ecstatic for others that may be different than ours. Think it's of the, the ramifications key, of that type of practice. I think it is the key practice. to everything. Oh, you're so I, rem- I remember very clearly, <laughs> I remember being at a dinner party when that sound of music that had been on TV, the live the sound live of music, uh-huh. had had just been on. And this discussion began, and I did not know the majority of the people at this dinner party, talking about they just got nasty. And they were just talking about, they're like, oh, it was just so bad. And, and so-and-so can't act. And this and one, blah, blah, blah. And, then, and all this stuff. And they just kept going on. And I finally said, may I say something? Actually, they did not do the sound of music to you. <laughs> They just did the sound of music. So it seems strange that you're so angry about it. If you don't like it, if you're like, eh, well, my bag, and I didn't think so-and-so could act. 
anyway, this this beef Wellington is delicious. Like, but the, <laughs> they were they were it because it was such like a like a, it became this firestorm of how nasty can we be? Yeah. About this, and I said, all I know is that my friends who have kids sat in front of that TV with their with their children, and the children were completely wrapped. They don't care. Nobody. They see cares. these people who sound great, and they're doing musical, and that's what's for. They're yeah. not doing it to someone. They're doing it for someone. Wow. And that's the difference. Standing O. I love that. Yeah. Um, congratulations on being part of theater history. And I'm so happy that we got to be introduced to you in a big, splashy way through this show. I remember on like a Divas CD, like compilation disc, uh-huh. there was like Liza Minnelli, Barbara Streisand, Julia Murney. Singing Raise the Roof. One of these things is not like the other. <laughs> Thank you again for uh, for doing this with me. It was my pleasure. And it was, it was my pleasure to be a part of that weirdo history. <laughs> As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at amusicalpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review our podcast because it helps it be seen and discovered by many people just like you. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at a musical podcast where we create more great content. Hey, Miss Julia Murney, how do we follow you and everything you're up to? Um, you could follow me on Instagram. I am Peppa Mama, P-E-P-A-M-A-M-A, because my dog's name is Pepper. Oh, And on Twitter, I'm at Julia Murney. You could follow me on the street, I suppose, if you saw me, but that would be weird. Wow, that would, that would be creepy, but um, appreciated. Maybe just social distance. Just say hi. It's all good. I, I do want to say uh, Queen of the Mist, which is the Michael John show I was talking about, has a beautiful cast album. I highly recommend that. And in terms of uh, someone looking for something else that Lippa has written, I would definitely take a look at I Am Harvey Milk, which is very beautiful, that he wrote as a commission for, I believe it was the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. It's a gorgeous piece. So I I just want to give those two men some shout outs. That's amazing. Thank you for doing that. Thank you for bringing everyone's awareness to those titles. Um, Thanks for listening, everybody. And... No matter which wild party you like, you're all correct. Everybody is correct. That's a tag. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.